All right, well, good morning, Redeemer. Um, uh, it's good to be with you all this morning. Do we have children? You guys know where you're going? We got it. Staying, going, you haven't decided yet? Yeah. Um, okay. The greatest movie released in 1993. Do you guys know what it was? It's better than Jurassic Park, better than Sandlot, better even than Rudy. 93 is a really good year for movies. Really good year for movies. It's the Bill Mo- I think it's the Bill Murray movie, Groundhog Day. Um, so if you're unfamiliar with this movie, it tells a story about an arrogant Pittsburgh TV weatherman named Phil Connors, and he is covering Groundhog Day in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, and as we're introduced to him, he's a total jerk. Uh, Phil Connors is just an incredibly self-absorbed, selfish man, and he ends up, he finds himself in a time loop. February 2nd repeats itself over and over and over again, and Bill Murray is the only one who knows that it's happening. And by the end of the movie, he he used the knowledge of the town and town on that day to help as many people as possible. He saves a homeless man's life, he fixes an old lady's flat tire, he makes friends with everyone, and he goes from being this irresponsible, self-absorbed, hard-hearted man to caring for and serving everyone in the town. And this movie, like all great movies, examines the relationship between knowledge and responsibility. It helps us to answer the question, knowing what you know, what are you going to do? Knowing what you know, what are you going to do? And Jesus puts the same question before us in this parable in Luke 10. What is the link between knowledge and responsibility? Knowing what you know, what are you going to do? And Jesus gives us this question by introducing us to these three characters, the man on a journey, the ones who pass by, and the merciful Samaritan. So I just need to tell you, um, I think this is a confession. As I was preparing for this, uh, this sermon is deeply convicting for me. And I stand before you this morning not as someone who has figured this out, but as uh, someone who deeply needs the mercy and grace of God. So first, the man on a journey. Our story begins with a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And uh, the historians and archaeologists tell us that the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a very uh, dangerous road. It was called the Bloody Way. It was this 17-mile road that over those 17 miles uh, descended 4,000 feet in elevation. And it was a a steep road that wound um, between cliffs and caves. And then thieves would hide out in these caves. And they would jump out, steal your stuff, and run off. And so traveling to Jericho in the first century would be like walking through a dark alley in a city today, except that there was, it was miles to the nearest streetlight. And so in our story, this man in an alley gets robbed, beat up, and left for dead. And by chance, there's a Jewish priest who walks by. And as the audience, we're supposed to, supposed to hear this and think, ah, pastor, the hero has entered the story because pastors are, here, are holy and compassionate. This guy is going to be taken care of. But what does the priest do? He sees the man and he crosses the street and walks on the other side, walks past him. And so perhaps we, might, we think maybe this guy had a good reason, a good excuse. We'll let him go. But then a Levite walks by. Now he's not quite as holy as a priest. Maybe he's like a new assistant pastor. But this guy must be the hero of the story. 
And what does the Levite do? Well, he sees the man, and he crosses the street, and he passes by on the other side. Now, why aren't they helping this man in the ditch? You know, maybe they were afraid it was a trap. They didn't want to get robbed themselves. So maybe if this was you, you would, you know, you're afraid it's a trap. You'd cross by on the, on the other side. You'd call the police for help. Um, maybe it's because of a religious reason. The Old Testament law declared that anyone who touched a body was ceremonially unclean and couldn't enter the temple for a week. And these men, the, the priests and the Levite, were, were the religious leaders and their work was in the temple. So perhaps, perhaps they were keeping their distance so that they uh, could, could do their work and, and not have to become unclean. Well, Jesus doesn't tell us why they walked by the man, just that they did. That they saw him and they crossed the street. They walked by on the other side. And this would have confounded the lawyer who Jesus was talking to. Because priests and Levites were members of the community whose job description included the responsibility to have mercy on strangers in need and to give financial support to the poor. But the two people whose job it is to care for this man, they see him, and then they pretend like they didn't. So what's going on here? Walker Percy, who's one of my favorite writers, um, in his book, The Second Coming, he has one of his characters say this. He said, you can get all A's and still flunk life. These guys got all A's. They're leaders in their community. They've polished their resumes. They've got really good jobs. They're experts in the law. These guys got all A's, and yet they still flunked life. What do I mean? Well, when it mattered to the guy in the ditch, well, they, they just crossed the street and kept walking. And this reveals an interesting relationship between knowledge and responsibility. The priest and the Levite, they had the knowledge. They know the commandment, but that is somehow separate from their human responsibility. And that raises the question, what will they do knowing what they know? What will they do knowing what they know? In 1961, Hannah Arendt, who was a a German Jew, um, a student of the Holocaust, a great political uh, philosopher. She published a compilation of essays about Adolf Eichmann. And Adolf Eichmann was the Nazi officer who was given the primary responsibility by Hitler for the Jewish question. And as she studied Eichmann's life and as she witnessed his trial, do you know what she found most striking, most intriguing about Eichmann? It was the ordinariness of his life. He didn't get up in the morning announcing that he was going to inflict unspeakable horror and terror. Rather, he said that he was simply obeying orders, just doing his job. How could a man who was responsible for so many thousands of murders be simply obeying orders and doing his job? Well, in Aaron's book, she returns again and again to the question, why didn't Eichmann see the Jews as his neighbors? And her conclusion is one word, thoughtlessness, thoughtlessness. This is what she wrote. He merely never realized what he was doing. It was sheer thoughtlessness, not stupidity. He wasn't stupid, he was thoughtless. It was his thoughtlessness that predisposed him to become one of the greatest criminals of World War II. And at his trial, Eichmann protested his charges. He said, with the killing of Jews, I had nothing to do. I never killed a Jew or a non-Jew for that matter. I never killed any human being. I never gave an order to kill a Jew or a non-Jew. I just did not do it. And this is how Arendt responded. She says, the fact is that Eichmann did not see much. He never actually attended an execution. He never actually watched the gassing process. 
He saw just enough to be fully informed of how the destruction machinery worked. He did see enough to be fully informed. And therefore, he was responsible. And yet, he did nothing to stop the Holocaust. How is this possible? This is what happens when we separate knowledge from responsibility. The priest and the Levite, they saw enough to be fully informed, and therefore they were responsible to the man in the ditch, and yet they did nothing to help the man who fell among the robbers. You can get all A's, you can have all the knowledge, and still flunk life. Well, then we're told a Samaritan man arrived. He's a sworn enemy of the Jewish man who's laying half dead in the ditch. He faced the same danger that the Levite and the priest did, and everything in his experience should have led him to step on the man, not just over him. And this is because Samaritans and Jews were bitter enemies. They were racial enemies. Think apartheid in South Africa or the Hutus and Tutsis in Rwanda. There's actually a moment in Jesus' life in John 8 when um, the Jews are inflamed with anger at Jesus and they call him the worst possible slur they can think of. They call him a Samaritan. And despite all this, the Samaritan, Samaritan is the one who had compassion. And at the end of the story, he's declared to be the one who showed mercy. He is the hero of the story because he's the one who took compassion. And this word compassion that we have in verse 33, or might be take, took pity in your translation, um, in the Greek, it's a verb form of the word for the inward parts of the body, like the guts, the heart, um, the bowels, like this, this word splagnon. I just, I love the, this word. This, the verb form for your inward parts, it's this word splagizomai. It's really fun to say. Um, so what is compassion? What is compassion? B.B. Warfield wrote that compassion means not indifference to our times and our neighbors, but it means absorption in time, absorption in our neighbors. It means forgetfulness of self and others. It means entering into every man's hopes and fears, longings and despairs. It means not that we should live one life, but a thousand lives. Bind ourselves to a thousand souls by the filaments of so loving a sympathy that their lives become ours. What is compassion? Um, one of the great Pixar, all the Pixar movies are great, but one of them, um, I remember seeing the theaters, the movie Up about the old man with the house who flies to the Amazon. And um, the beginning of this movie, we're given this picture of he and his wife, Carl and Ellie, and we're shown their, the story of their life together. It begins when they're young and they fall in love and they, they live together and they, they get married, they live together, they age together, um, and then it ends with Ellie's death and the loneliness of Carl. And it's so sad. They do such a good job of telling the story and showing us uh, that I remember wanting to comfort him, wanting to care for this cartoon old man uh, in the movie theater. Like, that's compassion. That's splagizomai, the feeling in your gut that you want to live through someone else's pain with them. And this is how Jesus related to people in need. This word compassion, splagizomai, is used in the Gospels a number of times to tell us how Jesus related to people. In Matthew 9, we're told that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had, this, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then in Matthew 14, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, we're told that the reason that he feeds them is because he saw the great crowd and he had compassion on them. He multiplied food to feed thousands of hungry people. 
He gave sight to the blind. He touched and healed lepers. He drove demons out of a child. He raised the son of a widow from the dead. And all of these, we are told, it's because he was moved by compassion. Compassion is the link between knowledge and responsibility. The link between seeing the need and doing the necessary thing. Being willing to see the need, looking until you are moved by compassion to act responsibly for your neighbor. At the end of verse 33, we're told that the, the, the Samaritan saw him. He had compassion, and he went to him. Compassion is the link between knowledge and responsibility, and compassion has a cost. The following verses show us the cost of compassion. The Samaritan went to him, he bound up his wounds, he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him, paid for his stay, and then promised to pay any debt that he incurred while at the inn. We see there's a social cost. The Samaritan was helping his people's sworn enemy. He was affirming the dignity of his enemy. It had a schedule cost. I mean, he was on his way to Jericho. He was going somewhere. He had somewhere to be. He had a meeting on his schedule. Instead, he sacrificed what was on his calendar to help the man. And it had a financial cost. Two denarii was about two days' pay. And on top of that, he agreed to pay any additional costs. Compassion has a cost, and it also has a call. Because the story is in the context of Jesus' conversation with this lawyer, where the lawyer asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, well, what's in the law? How do you read it? And then the lawyer responds by summarizing both Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Love your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you got it. Now go do this and you will live. And then we're told that the lawyer wanting to justify himself responds to Jesus, well, then who is my neighbor? And then we get this story. And what we learn from this story is that loving your neighbor can't be faked. It can't be faked. So what does this look like for us? Well, it's worth saying that Winston-Salem is a place where you can get all A's and still flunk life. You can move here, get your feet under you, get the right house on the right street, get a good job with good opportunities for advancement, and then before you know it, you have separated knowledge from responsibility. Before you know it, you've flunked life. You can see your neighbor, have knowledge of their suffering, and never do anything about it. But what do I mean? Well, knowing what you know, what are you going to do? Who are the people amongst you here at Redeemer, at Winston-Salem, who are in need of a neighbor? I want you to imagine this with me. Who are those who get trampled on or are avoided by those who have social power? Who's on the outside? Who is hard to love? Who do people like you not associate with? Who is off-limits to your compassion? Who do you ignore expecting someone else to care for them? Who doesn't have a voice? It could be an individual, that woman at the gym, that guy at work. It could be a group of people, like people who live in Greensboro. That's a joke. <laughs> it could be a certain type of person, people who fly certain flags or listen to certain types of music. Who is it, and why do you avoid loving them? What is the limit of your compassion? More often, than we'd, more often than we'd like to admit, we avoid loving our neighbor. We avoid even seeing our neighbor. Now, why is this? Well, first, we're distracted. 
Our lives are so deeply distracted. We're siloed off in our own echo chambers. And the way that I see this on campus at Wake Forest is that students walk with their faces in their phones and earbuds in their ears, AirPods in their ears, and you can't see your neighbor when your face is buried in a screen, and you can't hear your neighbor when you never take out your headphones. But why do we do this? Why would someone opt to put in headphones even if they're not listening to anything? Why would I opt to put in headphones even when I'm not listening to anything? And it's because staying distracted keeps you from feeling like you're obligated. If you are so focused on your work, you're excused to be thoughtless about the needs of people around you. And y'all, this is so deeply convicting for me. Friends, many of us are far closer to Eichmann than we'd ever care to think or imagine. Thoughtless about our decisions and how they affect our neighbors who bear the image of God. And even if we do see our neighbor, we still so often avoid compassion. Why? Why is it so hard for us to have compassion on our neighbor? I can tell you why it's so hard for me. It's so hard for me to have compassion on my neighbor because my loves are disordered. It's because I love the wrong things. I love my social status too much to bear the social cost of compassion. I love money too much to bear the financial cost of compassion. I love being in control of my schedule too much to bear the schedule cost of compassion. And more often than I'd like to admit, I pass by the man in the ditch because rather than loving God and my neighbor, my loves are wrapped up in myself and my status and my budget and my time. I avoid compassion because compassion has a cost. But there's also a cost to not loving. And that cost is living in the coffin of your own selfishness. And in that safe, dark, airless place, your heart will shrivel up. But I hear that, and it doesn't motivate me. It just exposes me and makes me feel condemned. But the brilliance of Jesus' teaching here is that he's not just giving the lawyer a lesson on how to be a good neighbor. He's not just showing him his sin and then giving him something to do. No, the brilliance of Jesus' teaching is that he's putting the lawyer in the position of being in need. Telling the story, he's saying to the lawyer, imagine that you were on the way to Jericho and you got beat up, and you were lying in a ditch. And then you fell among robbers. You were stripped and beaten and left half dead. Imagine this is you on the side of the road. And friends, this is your condition apart from Jesus Christ. You are naked. Our sin, our disobedience to God's law, leaves us ashamed and without covering before God. You are beat up, bruised and hurt by yourself and by others, You have sinned against your neighbors, your friends, and your family and your classmates. Your friends and family have sinned against you. You are wounded. You are brokenhearted. And you've been left for dead. Ephesians 2 says that you once, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And the Bible calls this death. The priest, religion, cannot save you. The Levite, Keeping the law, being good enough, it cannot save you. Friends, what you need is rescue. You need one who will come to you where you are, who will see you, and who will not cross the road to the other side. Will see you and will have compassion on you and will go to you. One who will go to you and will bind up your wounds. One who will carry you to a place where you can rest and be fed. One who pays your debts for you, debts that you owe. And this one is Jesus himself. Friends, Jesus heals. Jesus heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. And Jesus gives rest 
Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And Jesus pays the debt we owe because of our sin. Jesus canceled our debt that stood against us. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Because in Jesus, we see all beautiful things most clearly, and it's here that we see the compassion of God. And it's only as you see yourself as the man in the ditch of your own sin and misery, in need of the compassionate mercy of God, that you will, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have power to, sh- to show mercy to others. It's only as you see yourself first as the recipient of the compassion of Jesus Christ that you will have power to offer that compassion to others. Because the only true engine for real mercy is the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. In Christ, God doesn't look past your filth and your sin and your shame and your guilt. He looks right at you and he knows you. And his knowledge of you and your sin does not repel him. He looks at your mess and he doesn't say, John, you're just too messy. He looks at your hardness of heart and he doesn't say you're a lost cause. No, he sees you in your nakedness, beat up, left for dead. He sees you. He does not cross the street to the other side because he has somewhere else to be. No, he sees you and he loves you and he is moved by compassion towards you. He doesn't just sit there in his compassion, but he acted on it. And the pattern of God's response to our sin is the same pattern of the Samaritan's response to the man in the ditch. He sees, he's filled with compassion, and he moves towards you. In Philippians 2, Paul writes that Jesus, being very nature God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Taking the nature of a servant and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient, obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus lived the life that you should have lived, and he died the death that you deserve, so that by his Spirit he can heal and forgive you, and in his resurrection restore you to his Father in heaven. This is the mercy of God and Jesus Christ. This is the perfect picture of knowledge and responsibility together, made most visible to us in Jesus Christ in his incarnation and his crucifixion and his resurrection for you. So in conclusion, what does it look like when a people's knowledge and responsibility are linked together by the compassion of God? What does it look like when a group of Christians in a particular place at a particular time try to answer the question, who is my neighbor? I want to tell you one short story about a little town in France during World War II called Les Chambon. And this is told in the documentary, Weapons of the Spirit. In the documentary, they say that the story of this town is like a murder mystery in reverse, examining crimes that didn't take place and atrocities that were averted. In this little French village, with the encroaching armies of Nazi Germany and the Vichy regime in France, where Jews were fleeing and looking for refuge, Under the leadership of a local pastor, the citizens of Les Chambon risked their lives to hide Jews who were being rounded up by the Nazis. They hid the Jews in their homes, on their farms, and whenever the Nazi patrols would come searching, which they did, they hid the Jews in the mountains and in the countryside. After the war, one of the villagers recalled, and he said, "Um, as soon as the soldiers left, we would go into the forest and sing a song. And when they heard that song, the Jews knew it was safe to come home. Now things got more tense when the Germans invaded the South Zone in 1942, 
But the people of this little town continued to protect the Jews in open defiance of the authorities. In addition to providing shelter, the citizens of the town obtained forged IDs and ration cards for the Jews to use. And they helped them cross the border to safety of neutral Switzerland. And some of the residents of this town were arrested by the Gestapo and some were murdered, murdered in German concentration camps. But it's estimated that the people of Le Chambon saved between 3,000 and 5,000 Jews from certain death. And when they were asked why they hid the Jews at the risk of their lives, the people of Le Chambon gave answers like, well, it all happened very simply. We didn't ask ourselves why we were doing it. It was just the human thing to do. That's all. It happened so naturally, we cannot understand the fuss. It happened simply. I helped because they needed help. And this is why I love this story. It's so simple. It's so human. They weren't heroes. They simply answered the question, knowing what I know, what should I do? And I want you to hold in your minds the image of the people of Le Chambon and Adolf Eichmann. What is the difference between these two? Which of these two proved to be a neighbor? Oh, that we would go and do likewise. Let's pray.